for our scripture reading this morning, which is also our text for study together, is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Verse 8, to sum up, Peter says, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God add his blessing to that reading and now the study of his inerrant eternal word. I was just thinking this week, what an awesome privilege is mine to say each week, and I do at this appointed time, please Take your Bibles. This is not just a privilege, but a great responsibility for which I cherish the prayers of this church family. Now, of course, it should also be said that you have an awesome privilege and a great responsibility to not be just hearers of the word, but doers also for the greater glory of God. Amen. You know, a small town newspaper once advertised this bold print. They dared to publish. Read your Bible to know what people ought to do. Read this paper to know what they actually do. I suppose one of many ways we might summarize the essence of the Christian life is to say that are we not always striving to know what the Bible says while at the same time seeking the grace of God to conform our behavior to what that Bible says, to what we actually do. And in this ongoing study of the Apostle Peter's first letter, we come now to this chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, which is itself a summary of the Christian life, specifically when it comes to all of our, today we would say, our interpersonal relationships. The gospel makes new creatures of us. 
The gospel transforms us individually. It's wonderful to be able to say we have a personal Savior. But we need to understand, don't we, that we have a personal Savior in order that He might be honored as Lord over our corporate or interpersonal relationships. So we can say with truth that the very words we've also just sung, I really am glad to be part of the family of God, joint heirs with Jesus as together we travel this sod. That's a familiar chorus and much loved since it was written some years ago. You may have heard a slightly different twist on another well-known gospel song. It goes like this. When all my labors and trials are o'er and I am safe on that beautiful shore. You can say it with me. Just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be what? Glory for me. Glory for me. Now, you probably don't know this verse to the same hymn. To live above with the saints transformed. Oh, that will be glory for me. To live below with the saints I know. Well, that's a different story. Living below with the saints we know, however, is a very large subject in the teaching of the Bible. As we study verses 8 through 12 today, I want you to think about one or more of the troublesome, difficult, perhaps even annoying relationships you have With someone in your life. It's uh, really okay if their face or their name begins to form in your mind. I wonder if you have someone or maybe a few in mind. Troublesome, difficult, even annoying relationships. Do you have someone in mind? I feel like I want to ask, is it me? (laughs) I have a few myself. Now, at least in part, this is what Peter says to us in these verses we've just read. Is the will of God for you and for me, and especially in our more difficult relationships to one another. So I ask again, do you have someone in mind? And having read the text... Here is the will of God. Let me read it again. Just verse eight to sum up. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted and humble in spirit. Now, let's let's stop right there and uh, again, ask the application even before the sermon is preached. How have you been doing so far with that particular relationship that maybe you're thinking about? Would you 
describe your end of the relationship as pursuing harmony? Are you feeling the bonds of sympathy? Is there brotherly love? Are you responding in ways that would be described as kind-hearted? And what about this matter of uh, humility in terms of some relationship which for you may be a difficult one? Now, a cry for help in a difficult relationship, I really do believe, is the first smart thing we do. Notice, too, that while Peter says, all of you, I want all of you to assume some responsibility for this. All of you. We can't escape the fact that as we are personally and individually reading the text, the focus must be on what I do. Or as you read it, what is your part? Whether or not the other person gets this. You see, I don't wait for someone to be kind-hearted and humble before I practice a humble kind-heartedness toward them. We are going to be looking, as the Bible always does, more at ourselves this morning on this important subject than the other person. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 17, 18. I'll read it for you. He says, like Peter says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, that is, with everyone. So you see, what I'm wanting you to realize is that everything you'll hear as we study this text, don't be too concerned about the person sitting next to you across the way or may even be somewhere else in another state with whom you have some degree of relational difficulty. We're to look in the mirror of God's word to see what manner of man or woman of God we are at this point in our spiritual growth. But I want to say this as well. If someone is here this morning and is thinking, I already can't relate to this sermon. I really don't have these problems. You may be saying, I can't think of anyone. Why, especially in the church that gives me hives or ticks me off. I have something to say to you, and I pray that God may give you the grace to hear it if anyone indeed is thinking like that. Maybe... You don't face this kind of struggle because you really aren't all that involved in the life of the family, the family of God. You see, the apostles like Paul and Peter, whenever they give these kinds of relational commands, they make a great assumption. They assume every believer is involved and personally committed to body life in the body of Christ, the church. And I say, has it ever occurred to you that perhaps you have so few struggles in this area because you simply do not care enough about anyone else but yourself and your own personal peace? 
It's one of the signs of our culture, this social isolation as being the wisest choice, some think. You keep a safe distance. This way you don't get hurt. I have known of people who come to our church from other churches who had some bad experience way back then. And at times they'll tell me, we're here, we want to receive the preaching, but do not expect us to join the church. Do not expect us to get all that involved. You see, we've had a bad experience. You keep a safe distance. You know too little about the agony, frankly, and the ecstasy of real koinonia. The Greek term for biblical, authentic biblical fellowship. But let me say, and I hope this is true, if you are engaged in the multitudinous one another commands of family life, the family of God, then you know exactly how much you need to hear what this passage of Scripture is saying. On the other hand, if you're trying to live the Christian life isolated from the hard, sanctifying work of getting along in the family of God, I will say to you without apology on the authority of God's Word, you are already out of God's will for His children. Do not be deceived. If you can't relate to Peter's exhortations, if these words do not bring you under conviction, then you are neither balanced nor healthy. In your spiritual life, what I'm saying is you and I need close friendship and fellowship in the body of Christ. May I add warts and all. We need close friendships and you need to engage others. And when you do. Don't plan to be talking just about yourself. Trust me. I will say that if you begin, if you haven't already, to commit yourself more than ever to loving one another, by knowing one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, Spending time with one another, it takes that, and laboring together in the great variety of spiritual gifts and designated tasks of gospel work. And you will definitely need today's scripture lesson. I mentioned a smart thing we do in all of our relationships a few moments ago, and that is a cry for help and to pray. So let's pray and then we'll move on through this text. Heavenly Father... Make us willing to be made willing to commit ourselves to the fellowship we are meant to have with one another in Christ. And then, dear Lord, give us grace to love one another as you have loved us for the sake of Christ. He who was so intimately involved with us that he personally carried every one of our many sins to his cross. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's unpack beginning here at verse 8. When Peter writes, 
to sum up, or as the King James Version translates it, using the word finally, it is clearly a reminder that we are meant to hear these exhortations to live harmoniously among ourselves, for example, out of the context of what has already been said. Peter has said a lot in chapter 1 and 2 in the first part of chapter 3. This is not a small matter because every New Testament command that we are given is to be motivated by the gospel of grace. We want to know in this case, what is the will of God for my most difficult relationships? But of all the New Covenant writers, they want to make it clear that what God commands of his children is to always be, as it were, gospel driven or grace inspired. Otherwise, what we do, even in our trying to be good Christians and getting along with each other, is that we fall under the tyranny of the law. We end up with little more than moralism, simply our own best efforts to get along. And if we do that, we will always fall miserably short of God's true standard. God is always looking for a from-the-heart obedience. It's what Peter had in mind when he said that we who have tasted the kindness of the Lord now have our hearts cleansed, he says, for a sincere love, a sincere love of the brethren. That was back in the first two chapters. So the summing up virtues that he lists here in verse 8, things like harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, kindheartedness, and humility, are much more than a call to mere Judeo-Christian values. Instead, these are what the theologians would call the horatory commands from which we get the word exhortation. The word exhortation means that the apostles and Jesus himself are simply calling out of us what has been planted into us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. When, as Peter put it again earlier in the text, caused us to be born again to the living hope Peter refers to there Back in chapter 1 and verse 3. In fact, that was to be our key verse for the whole epistle when we began this study many months ago. Let me read that theme verse again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so... Please see that every command of Scripture, this is a liberating truth, folks, that every command of Scripture is simply the continuation of God's calling on our new life to produce or call out of our new nature, which is from Him, that life which God has given us by His grace. As we said back in those days in our earlier studies, that is why 
Every good work of the believer, every good behavior gives evidence of God's work in us. We, as the apostle puts it, are to work out our salvation. That is, to understand we can work it out because God has already and continues to do a work within us. Exhortation. The commands of Scripture for the Christian are not like the law at Mount Sinai. They are grace-filled commands, and our obedience to them is to be gospel-driven, grace-filled. He's calling out of us to be and express and produce the fruit of what he has given to us in that new life. Peter is exhorting. He is calling out the best of, not us in a sense, but the best of our new life. When he quite specifically, we've noted, names five Christ-like virtues that govern, are meant to govern our interpersonal relationships. And that's what we're going to look at here in the next moments. I want to quickly define each of the five virtues so that we might discover that these things are not ethereal, mystical, or merely idealistic notions, but are meant to interpret into real life actions. I like to put it this way sometimes, real life actions on any Tuesday of the week. Uh, We're usually on our best behavior on Sundays. I'm a little more concerned, and I think God is too, with how we handle our Tuesdays. And every other day of the week. So let's look at the five virtues and take this apart a little bit. And I'll list them for you, for those of you that like to take notes and refer again later to these important truths. Real life, Christian virtue number one. He says in verse eight, all of you be harmonious, not play the harmonica. But be harmonious. The King James Version uses the phrase of one mind. Not that we all are to think alike. Fact is, that would be pretty boring. But that we are all to be on the same page, if you will. Producing this thing called harmony. We all have this same attitude, maybe a better way of putting it. And the attitude should be this, that Jesus is the most important person in the room. Let's be honest, there have been times when the church of Jesus Christ is gathered and you'd never get the idea in some situations as conversations take place that Jesus is the most important person in the room or that he's there at all. You need to understand that the most important person in my relationship to you, for example, is not you, but Jesus. How I treat you and how you treat me is to depend upon the most important person in that relationship. And that person is Jesus. I like this translation that renders it harmony, harmonious. Uh, The page, apparently, that we are to be on in our relationships to one another is meant to make sweet music 
if you will, in the Father's ear. I, I like this word harmony, harmonious. You know, I, I know of no sweeter noise in a family, especially if you're like me with a book and you're reading in the other room and what you hear in the background uh, are the children or perhaps others there who are, well, I just think the sweetest sound of all is the sound of laughter and of joy. Paul put it this way in another place. It's sort of like making melody in our hearts to the Lord. It is not that we're all pounding on middle C. No. But each one somehow striking their own key in the family of God. Under the, the direction of the Holy Spirit, producing a symphony of praise, loving God, loving each other, making music with our friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I'm a byproduct of the 60s, and so sometimes my illustrations hail back to that period of time in pop culture. I want to say this to apologize, but I'm going to use the illustration anyway. You know, Paul McCartney, maybe two or three of you know who he is. He certainly is no theologian. And Stevie Wonder isn't a composer of sacred hymns, but I kind of like the sentiment expressed in their pop duo all the way back in 1982. And it was entitled Ebony and Ivory. Now, the theme of the song was about racial reconciliation, of course. But as I recalled those words, and yes, I was able to recall those words, I found it has something of a wide application to every kind of interpersonal relationship. Now, in case you weren't a fan of the Beatles or of Paul McCartney, here are the lyrics. You can almost hear Stevie Wonder pounding them out and singing them. Ebony and ivory. Now, this is referring to the keys on a piano, the black keys and the white keys. Ebony and ivory live together in perfect harmony, side by side, on my piano keyboard. And then this expression comes forth. Oh, Lord, why don't we? We all know that people are the same wherever you go. There is good and bad in everyone. Stevie Wonder sings, we learn to live, we learn to give each other what we need. Ebony and ivory live together in perfect harmony, side by side on my piano keyboard. Oh, Lord, why don't we? Ebony and ivory living in perfect harmony. And Peter is saying, through the direction of the Holy Spirit to his church then and now. Oh, that Christians, red and yellow, black and white, introvert, extrovert, and everything in between, live together in harmony. It's God's will. And the great thing is, it is possible. By the way, some trivia. Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder that produced that song and even the video were not even in the same room. They just taped their parts. They just did their part. And it was a director that blended the voices. Again, a 
picture of what it is that we ought to be concerned about as individuals in the body of Christ. We just we just do our part. We we sing our part. We express what God has given to us. And the great director manages to bring it together. One of the more unusual stories, and then I'll get off of the Beatles here, that came out of that one popular hit was a video that was made that involved two stroke victims. It was a very powerful message. One was African-American and the other white. One was paralyzed on the right side. The other stroke victim was paralyzed on the left. They sat down at the piano bench and they played the song the only way that it could be played, each playing their own side by side at the piano bench. Folks, if the world can get that much right, we Christians have absolutely no excuse. We're to be making harmony like music in the Father's ears. Real life virtue number two. He says, all of you are to be, my translation says, sympathetic. I like the King James. It says, have compassion one of another. It's another one of the 54 one another's in the New Testament. That's why I said earlier, by the way, that getting committed and involved in each other's life is essential to obeying most of the New Testament. 54 one another exhortations. Have compassion one of another. Be sympathetic. Let me ask, on a scale of one to ten, what would you say in this cynical age in which we live, what would you say is your compassion quotient? That, number one, you are the least feeling and the least compassionate concerning other people's struggles. To number ten, you've got this Christ-like quality of being compassionate. Are you sympathetic? Or like too many people, just pathetic? Let me tell you what I think this is about in the body of Christ. I think it is that when the weakness of others tests the strength of our grace... Toward them. I best repeat that. Compassion, to be sympathetic in the meaning of the term. It is when the weakness of others, whether it be besetting sin on their part, whether it be some unsanctified temperament uh, that God hasn't quite had victory over yet in someone's life. Whatever the case may be, it is when the weakness of others tests the strength of our grace toward them. I'm not talking about the strength of God's grace. We know how strong a thing that is. After all, He saved you and redeemed me when we were His enemies. This is about the degree to which we are moved with compassion toward the weaknesses of others. Even if their weakness 
is found to be such an annoying thing or even a hurtful thing. This growing ability of ours by growth in grace itself is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the Christ-like quality. Do you remember what the author of the magnificent sermon to the Hebrews said? He wrote, We have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then he says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. It's the same word here. Who does not have compassion with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet he never failed without sin. And then it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You know that if you come in your weakness... If you come in your sin to the throne of grace, what you find is this word, sympathy, compassion. So let us come to the throne of grace so that we may receive, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we are to mirror That kind of gospel grace in each of our relationships and especially the most difficult ones. So, when someone draws near to us in their time of weakness or need, do they find in us what we found in Christ? Do they receive mercy and grace? From our hand. That is the question. And it is also our our work, sanctifying work, until mercy instead of judgment becomes our first thought and action, even if especially toward the unjust or the unworthy. I, I cannot give confident testimony to the fact that my first thought, that my first action, when met with unkind or unjust words or treatment, I can't confess that very often mercy is my first thought. And so the cry for help goes up. And the Lord does help us. But we are called to incarnate to put into our own practice and in our relationships, we are called to incarnate the gospel. We're to mimic Jesus Christ in the way that he related to us is how we are meant to relate to one another. Let everything be harmonious. Let everything be sympathetic. Now, real life Christian virtue number three. We have to keep moving along, don't we? All of you, he says, are to be. And he just uses one word here. To be brotherly. You may have already guessed, if you have some familiarity with the Bible, that you know the Greek word here is Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia, named after this word. The birthplace of our nation's liberty. 
It was William Penn's vision to establish a community which he called brotherly, Philadelphia, where the neighbor is to be treated, he said, like one of the family. One thinks of the Amish or the Mennonite testimonies in and around the same area of Philadelphia. You know how it goes. Someone's barn burns down in the middle of the night. And before daylight, the women start baking hams and pies. And the men grab their tools and their carts and they do a barn raising for their neighbor. This is Philadelphia. Oh, not the one up in Pennsylvania. This is to be the real life virtue of the people of God. When one weeps, we too weep. When one has cause to rejoice, we rejoice. You know what I have found as a pastor of more than 30 years? On many occasions, in the same 24-hour period, I have been called upon to do both. To weep with those who weep and to rejoice and be glad with those who rejoice. We together are called to this. Real life Christian virtue number four. He says, all of you be kind-hearted. The Apostle Paul used the same term and gave a concrete example of how that looks back in Ephesians 4 and verse 32. You don't need to turn there, but it says in that text, be kind-hearted. And one might say, well, Paul, what do you mean? And the next phrase is this, be kind-hearted, forgiving one another, another of the one another's. And to forgive, that very word literally means to let it go. Today, in our vernacular, it would be good to hear very often in our relationships, in the family of God, when the heat is on, to hear more and more people say what you hear even at the grocery store or at the restaurant. No problem. No problem. That's forgiveness. Let it go. This is what it means to be kind hearted. It's referring to a condition of the heart, the spiritual heart. Let me ask you, and I've been asking you some tough questions this morning. I asked them of myself. And so I'm including you in the blessing no one wants. How accessible is your heart? Or let me ask you. Does it tend to freeze over at the slightest offense? I'll tell you, there is nothing more uh, uncomfortable or disturbing when I have uh, tripped on my own tongue, and I do. And I can offend, I suppose, with the best of them. When you try to make it right and what you meet is a frozen heart, a chilly reception, 
Even though maybe you've come with tears of repentance saying, oh, do not allow this to impact our relationship because the most important person in our relationship, remember, is who? It is Jesus. So how accessible, how kind hearted is your heart? Yes, it takes grace. But we have that. For where some of you have been before Christ, it takes a new nature. But you have that. To say at any point, for any Christian to say, you can't forgive either the slightest or the greatest offense, I want to tell you, that's like backing out of your profession of faith. That's how seriously God takes this. Because there is no more Christ-like quality than forgiveness. Sometimes I think that's why God in His providence and sovereignty allows us to offend one another. Just so He can take some delight in the quality of forgiveness that He sees developing in our hearts. What if Jesus had said to you, What if Jesus had said to me, well, you've made a fine mess of your life. You made your bed. Now sleep in it. But you see, he was too kind hearted for that. So he has let go of your greatest offenses. And they were many. And he continues to do that every time you ask forgiveness. He never ever refuses to forgive. The question is, will we do less for one another? That, you would think, is unconscionable. And yet I know, tragically, sadly, I have to say, too many Christians who for years have refused to forgive someone. You know, the blood that you plead, the blood that I, my wife of 23 years, had to plead this morning in the car before coming to this place, the blood that we had to plead for our cleansing this day to be an instrument clean, at least for his use, is the same blood that you and I must apply to others' offenses. Take the phrase, if you will, get it under the blood. Sometimes I have known such tough situations in pastoral counseling that I knew nothing could really be made right completely. What's done is done. And the best counsel that I could ever give, I think, was to say, Harry, Joe, Sally, you've got to get this thing under the blood. If I couldn't get my offenses against the holy God under that blood, where would I be? I must do this for others as well. Finally, real life Christian virtues. Number five, he says, all of you be humble in spirit. The King James Version translators rendered this to be courteous. Isn't that nice? Isn't it amazing that we have to be told 
as Christians to be courteous and not just curt? What is this Christian virtue? Humble in spirit or courteous. You know what it is? It's the you go first attitude. It's a kind of quiet spirit that treats others as better than oneself. By the way, they may just be better. This kind of spiritual fruit is seen in the person who has what I like to call the power, the strength of meekness. Someone who doesn't have to nag or needle. This is the opposite of an I told you so attitude. And I think an example of this is when James tells us, I'm glad he does, that we can ask God for wisdom whenever we need it. How often do you think you need it? All the time. And James says, you need to know you have a God and Father who when you ask Him for wisdom, you know what? He will give it to you. But that isn't all He says. When you ask God for wisdom, He will give it to you. And the King James says, and He upbraideth not. I'm just too far beyond 1611 when the King James Version was given us to really get a handle on that. What he's saying is, I can ask the Lord for help and He will give it, but He will never call me stupid for asking, even though I am stupid. It's not in His nature. He's courteous. Our God is, our God is humble in spirit toward us. This biblical courtesy, to be humble in spirit toward one another, it really is a beautiful thing. The particular Greek term that Peter employs is philophron. This thing sounds pretty. It sounds like a flower. It sounds like something that would grow in Florida. A philophron. It's two words put together in the Greek. Philo is the word friend. And phron means understanding. It is what we mean when we say, no one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. It is that that we are to mirror in a grace-driven relationship to one another. So Peter's given us five summary, real-life Christian virtues. Peter is calling these qualities out of our new nature. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. The next time you get bumped, you know what God's concerned about? What spills out. The next time you and I hit a bump in the road... In our relationships, which we must commit to, God's looking to see what will spill out. Oh, may it be these graces. May it come out of our new nature and not the old. I I just didn't get any further than verse 8. And we're supposed to be 
looking at verse 9 and 10, 11, and 12. And uh, you can pray that the Lord would tarry with his servant and that I will actually appear in this place where together I'll pray you too will appear and we'll just go to the next verse. And as we do here at Good Shepherd Church, I trust to our soul's deep benefit than the next verse and the next verse after that until we reach a new chapter and the next verse. Would you stand together with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise to be an ever-present help in our time of need. Please be present in power the very next time we must deal with our anger, our hurts, our fears. In all of our relationships with one another, help us to express the grace of the gospel that you have given to us. We ask this so that the world may know you really have changed our lives for your glory. And God's people said, Amen.